So I, I want to I press into what, a little bit more about what I was talking about last week. You know, last week we covered this concept of uh, unbelief, and I had a couple of questions raised to me about unbelief uh, and how we can step out of unbelief and how we can begin to see God move in our situation and pull ourselves out from underneath that blanket of unbelief. I want to clarify a couple of points on that as we move forward and we learn how to press into God's favor and God's hand on our life and being able to flow in his love more. Amen? And so uh, last week I talked about the idea of unbelief and the dangers of unbelief. I want to clarify what I mean by that. Uh, the, the scriptures say this. There is a gentleman that comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, do you believe I can heal your son? And the father replies to Jesus. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You've heard that one before? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Now, there's lots of theological discussions about what that means, but in the context of what I want to say today, it matters in this direct passage, is that this man was struggling with unbelief. He was in a moment where he was struggling with his own belief. But you notice the way in which he approaches Jesus. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, which means I'm struggling, but I'm going to choose to lean into you today. I'm going to choose to attempt to make a trust. There are moments in our life where we are just struggling to believe. I want you to understand, struggling to believe is doubt. When I'm talking about unbelief, walking in unbelief, there is a difference between a struggle of unbelief and walking in unbelief. And the difference is this, to struggle with unbelief is to be human. We encounter things in our life that press our faith to the edge, that push us to the limit of trusting God. And there are moments where our unbelief is winning the day. That does not make us unbelievers. That puts us in the doubt category. Where we step across the line and it becomes dangerous is not when we are just struggling with belief, but rather when we are critical because of our unbelief. When we step into a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, where we start to attack the move of God, where we start to attack the things of God, where we start to attack other people who have encountered God, that's when we don't, we're not in unbelief. We're not struggling with our own faith. We're not struggling with doubt. We have become a critic of God himself. And that's where we can struggle. There is nothing wrong with saying, God, I've prayed, I've sought you, I've been looking for you, and I don't know where you are. I, I don't know how to find you. I've prayed all the prayers. I don't know what to do. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, I just don't know. See, the problem is, is that what happens is, is that we, we come into situations where we are under fire or under attack and our souls grow weary. Has anybody in here ever got a little weary from the battle? Can we just be on? We get weary. We get, I get weary. There's nothing wrong with that. Where, where it turns into a, a problem for us is when we begin to, instead of being weary from the battle and feeling like we can't win, it's when we turn our sword on our neighbor. It's when we turn our sword on our brother or sister and we start to actively become the Benedict Arnold. We change sides. That's the problem. Unbelief of, I don't know if we can win this battle, is totally different than, you know what? I don't think we can win this battle. That guy's going to win, so I'm going to side with him and kill you all and help him win so I can be on the winning side. That's the danger is when unbelief turns into us deserting the side of God and actively engaging in warfare against it. That's what I'm talking about. You know, several people came up to me. I had four or five people come up to me and, and say, Pastor Ren, I'm so sorry that people are giving you a hard time and 
and uh, um, grieving you and, and attacking you for what God is doing in the church. And, and I just want to, I'm just so sorry. And I, and I had to tell them, I, I don't, uh, sometimes when I preach, I just get really, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm bigger than life sometimes. Um, my whole personality is to be larger than life. I don't know how to do calm. I don't do level one that well. I have to remember. Like I'm like fire over everything. And sometimes it's just, it's okay. It's okay, right? Right, I, 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 I forget that. And so sometimes when I say things, it comes across in a way that seems it's worse than that. So I just want to say this to you. I'm not bothered a bit by criticism. So when someone criticizes it, don't ever feel bad for me when I tell you what's going on. Don't feel bad that people are out there attacking me. If they're not attacking me, if they're not saying something, I'm not doing anything. And so when I post things about what God is doing here, I absolutely and totally expect someone to, to jab. I complete, you don't step into a ring and then you're upset because the guy threw a punch. I'm in the ring. That's what's going to happen. I'm in the fight. I expect a fiery dart to be far uh, fired from the enemy when I'm standing there going, come on, what you got? If I'm taunting you by advancing, see, the kingdom of God is called to advance. It says, and upon this truth or upon this revelation or upon this rock, right, upon Peter, however you want to interpret that, the, uh, shall I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are defensive weapons. We've talked about this. I have never seen a gate marching into battle. That would look really awkward, wouldn't it? It's like something on Beauty and the Beast, right? Like, you know, like, just, no, 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 no. Um, you've never seen a gate march into battle. It's a defensive weapon. So when God says the gates of hell shall not prevail, I believe that means that we are called to advance. And so if I am advancing on you, I'm not a set at all that you fire back. It's going to happen. The enemy is, gonna, is, is going to use it. The sad thing is that so many times the enemy is using brothers and sisters in Christ. But I believe that God is bringing a spirit of unity to the body of Christ right now. So I, I want to say this because I want to say, how, how, do we, how do we help our unbelief? Because I think at times all of us, some of you have received miracle after miracle. And then the next miracle, we struggle to believe that God will do it again. So even though we've seen it, even though it's happened for us, it becomes a struggle. And that's okay. Can I just let everyone off the hook for a second? It is okay to go through seasons of your life where you are struggling to believe. Struggling to believe for the next thing. I want to let everyone off the hook. If it's not okay, then David, King David, was in a lot of trouble. All you have to do is read the Psalms to read how David flip-flopped between believing and unbelief. He started most of his Psalms going, oh, they're going to get me. They're going to kill me. Every, I don't know how I'm going to survive. And by the end, he found his voice and his strength again. God encouraged him till his faith rose up. And so what happens is when the enemy comes in, he will come in and attack the three things. Corinthians teaches us. Above all these is faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And so what happens is when the enemy comes in and assaults, usually the first things to go is not love, but faith and hope. 
We begin to feel hopeless about our situation. We begin to doubt that God can move in that situation. And I'm here to say is that faith and hope many times will be retracted from us. So how do we walk in seeing the greater moves of God? How do we walk and see God move in our life when we're, when we're depleted in our faith, when we're depleted in our hope? Because we have a weapon that has not yet been depleted. The one thing that remains, even as hope and faith are in retreat, is love. Love is the last to go as long as you start with it. If you have love, if you have hope, and you have faith, as faith and hope begin to be assaulted, love stands as a barrier to make sure that the battle line that God has called you to is not breached. In Acts chapter 3, if you have your word with you this morning, and I do, turn to Acts chapter 3, we're going to read this. I want us to understand a little bit more because I believe that the love of God, and that's why I say as you're turning there, that's why I say that I'm not concerned about the criticism. I just use it to demonstrate where we're at because here's the truth. I can handle that criticism. It doesn't, it, it doesn't phase me. Um, I've learned to deal with it. I don't know if you have. And so I bring it to you so that if it comes to you, you say, well, this is how Pastor Ren dealt with it or Pastor Ren faces this. This is normal and you don't feel overwhelmed by it. I don't want you taken out of the fight because someone has words that, uh, that um, broke your bones. How many of you guys know that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you is the biggest lie ever. I would rather you break a bone, that'll heal, but the words that people speak over you can last a lifetime unless you actively go after healing them. Those assaults on your identity will remain long after scars heal and bones mend. Truth? I understand the intent of that is to get you not to let those words in, but they do. And they penetrate to the bone and marrow. They cut you to the core. And so I want you to be prepared for as you step out in faith and grow in your faith, there is a whole world that's waiting to shoot darts at you. There is a whole series of your brothers and sisters in Christ that are looking to take you down. That's just a part of the process. Do you know that every great move of God starts with division? I want you to understand that. As God begins to release something on the earth, as every revival began to start, it caused massive division. But the interesting thing is, is as the revival began to be unthwarted by the division, it brought unity. And so what would happen is, is as they would move, people go, mm -mm, no, nah, that's a new thing. We don't like that new thing. We know our Bible says, behold, God does an old thing. That's, we like the old thing because we know that and we can make a method out of it. Do, do, you, do you know that there is a whole, there's a, an organization called Circuit Riders. The original name Circuit Riders comes from the Methodists who would ride around on horses everywhere proclaiming the gospel. Revival would break out. Healings would happen. In the 50s, they had tent revivals, that, that healing crusades around the world. The Methodists, right? Why are they called Methodists? Because they took the fire of God and created methods out of it. They methodized the move of God and it became a method. And so when something new happens, they go, well, that doesn't fit in our method. It doesn't fit in the method. And so they reject the new. Behold, God does a methodical thing. That is not the word of God. And so God likes to break our methods because he's interested in the relationship. I said it last week, and, and I know we need to start marriage counseling for a couple that agreed with it, but nobody wants to be taken on the same date at the same place with the same meal every single day, the same time for the rest of their marriage. 
That is not spicy. That is bland. Okay, that, that's bland. I don't want that. You want that? That's fine. We'll start counseling on Monday. It's fine. <laughs> I could do sushi every time, same time, same place. That's true. All right. Leave a little room for grace, Ren. Leave a little room for grace. Stop being so judgy. <laughs> Some people, if you don't know me, I'm ornery. That's just the way I am. Don't take, don't take offense by me. If you don't know me yet, I'm ornery. That's how I... That, that is, uh, you know, guys, you know there's five love languages, right? You ever read that five love languages? He is totally wrong. There are six love languages. Sarcasm is a love language. I don't care what you say. That is my love language. Okay? It's my love language. Everyone around here has learned, Pastor Ren's been really nice to me. He's always really nice to me. That probably means I don't know you or I don't like you. Okay? You know you've broken through and we're in good relationship now. I, I now know you when I'm willing to be ornery to you. Okay, that's the sign. Well, he just picked on me. I'm in. <laughs> okay, some of you are like, I don't like that. I don't like, I'm sorry, I'm working on it. We'll deal with those, the, those sticks and stones that broke your bones, okay? We'll deal with that later. All right, so I want, I want to pick up this story in Acts chapter 3. We, we have Peter who's beginning to move, right? He, we've just had Acts chapter 2. Pentecost has come. Uh, the fire of God shows up, an outpouring of the Spirit they had never seen before happens, and Peter has to get up and say, let me explain you. If you read Acts, there's a whole lot of, what the heck is this? Uh, oh, let me explain you. Okay, there's a whole lot of, uh, I think it's that. There's a whole lot of having to figure out what's happening as the power of God begins to pour out. They have to take a minute, decipher the word of God and say, this is that from the Old Testament. We're seeing what's happening. As new things are poured out that the Jews are unaware of or the Christian church, the church has never seen before. This is a normal occurrence and in a move of God, in a move of God, we should see moments like this. So in Acts chapter two, fire of God comes down and Peter has to stand up and preach a gospel. Thousands come and are baptized. I think it was 3,000 in chapter 2. I might be wrong, but I think it's 3. Uh, but in chapter 3, we read that they're going back and forth between house church and synagogue. Okay, so they're going to big church and little church. Does that make sense? A lot of people like to say the Acts model of church, they didn't meet in buildings. Of course they met in buildings. They met in synagogue. It says all, every letter of Paul, he's writing to a church. An established church, he goes to churches and it says he preaches in the synagogues. Okay, let, let, me, let me translate that into English. Churches. These are Jewish churches that are learning about Messiah. The Messiah promised to them in the Jewish scriptures. So he's going to church. They're having church. Okay, and plus he's having house meetings. So in Acts, we see both happening at the same time. A healthy church model is we should see Small groups and people meeting in their homes, praying together, breaking bread, fellowshipping, doing things, and coming together as the body of Christ. That's what a healthy move of God looks like. It's not one or the other. And anyone that wants to tell you that you should just have house church, and that's the only model, is somebody who has been wounded. It's always somebody who has had church hurt. And that's okay. It happens. But just recognize that your theology is not conditional on your pain. You cannot process theology through your pain. You can say, I'm hurt by church and I really don't want to be a part 
of, of a group of people because they're going to hurt me. But you cannot change God's word. You can't say that's God's word. No, it's not. I'm wounded. If you start with the truth, then the truth can set you free. Anybody in here not been wounded by a church? Raise your hand. You're, you're new. You're, you're new if you don't raise your hand. Like I, I took three years off because I'm like, I'm done with these people. Is there anybody not taking a season off where you're like, I am done with church? Is there anybody like me? I am done with church. Yeah, it happens. It's normal. It's okay. But we can't change the word of God to fit our narrative so that we feel good about our decisions if they don't line up with the word of God. We have to go with the word of God. So meeting in house churches, meeting in churches, this is what they're doing. And Peter is on his way to do one of those things. And it says this in verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the time of prayer. So Jesus has come. Jesus has ascended. Holy Spirit has now come in fire. He's added thousands to the church. Where's he going? To the temple at the time of prayer. He's not going just at any time to the temple. He's going during service. He is going to service. Okay, just like you came here at 1030, the ninth hour was the time of prayer. It says at the time of prayer. Now a man lame from birth was being carried every day. So they used to put him at the temple gate called beautiful. So he could beg uh, for money from those entering from the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go in the temple, he began to ask to receive uh, uh, funds. But Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, now I want you to get this. He's being carried right now. Before I even show what he said, he's being carried to the temple. So he hasn't even quite made it to this spot that he sat at for many, many years. Since birth, he's had this deficiency. And, and, and he's being carried there. So he's being carried so just, just picture this, right? He's being carried over there so he can be set at his spot and beg for the day. And he looks over and he sees Peter and John. And they look at him. I want you to catch this. When he saw Peter and John about to go in the temple, he began to ask to receive that. So he's looking at them. But Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. Now, your translation may be more correct there, and it says they looked down at him. Everyone say down at him. Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Yeshua Jesus, get up and walk. Then grabbing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately the man, man's feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began walking, and he went with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now all the people saw him walking and praising God. They began to realize he was one who used to sit begging for money at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and astonishment over what had happened. Then it says right after that, while he was clinging to Peter and John. I want you to picture this. This guy is being carried in. As he's carried in, he's walking beside Peter and John, and he kind of looks over them like, hey, uh, you know, he's getting his day started early. He's not even waiting till he's seated down. He's just like, hey, could you give me some money? And Peter and John look to him and say, hey, we don't have any gold or silver, but what we do have is more valuable. Now get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks and everyone there knows who this man is. They recognize this is the beggar that's been begging us for money. I want you to understand why this is so significant. Beggars would sit at the gates of the temple to go in. And they would ask for money. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, if, if you didn't have time to go into service, 
you could give one of those beggars some alms, alms for the poor. You could give that to them, and that qualified for your service to God that day. And so you didn't have to go into the temple to pray or worship. You could just give them that and go on about your day. So many people, I'm busy today. I just, there you go. Boom, I'm done. I'm out. So they would come, pay their tithes, and leave real quick. I want you to understand there are a lot of people who say they don't need to go to church because they're a good person. They've paid their time. They've paid their tithes. They've given. They've blessed the needy. I, I don't go to church. I don't tithe in church. I give to the poor, and, and that's my service. They think that they are fulfilling their obligation to God because they help someone less fortunate. Is it good to help someone less fortunate? Yes. Should we help them? Yes. Does that fulfill an intimate relationship with God? No. I can't go to my wife and say, we have a good marriage because I took care of our kids. That, that's, that's not going to make a good, but I'm a good dad. But am I a good husband? The, the fact of whether I'm a good husband has very little to do with whether I'm a good dad. Now, if I'm a bad dad, that directly affects my marriage. But I can't tell my wife we have a good marriage because I'm a good dad. In fact, there's a lot of marriages in here that as soon as their parent, as soon as, excuse me, as soon as the children leave the nest, the parents don't know what to do with each other. They, they have put all of their identity into being parents and they don't have any marriage left. They spent all of their time and energy in parenting that their marriage suffered the whole time. That happens very frequently. So you can't say because I gave something to one person, I have had an intimate relationship with God. That's not how they coincide together. Amen? Are you following with me? So it says, so, so, so they get them up. He's healed. He's totally set free. People are going, whoa, that's the guy that's been begging forever. We know him. He's a cripple. And they're filled with awe and wonder. They're, wow. They see this. And this man is rejoicing and praising God. And then it says in the next sentence, he's clinging to them. He's grabbing a hold of them. So picture this guy just wrapped his arms all around him, just bear hugging Peter and John won't let go of him, okay? You ever see a kid sitting on someone's leg and everywhere they go, they get, right? All the kids come up to me and I got to carry them around. Sometimes it's two of them and I'll, you'll see me walking through the sanctuary with kids on my, sitting on my leg. And it's fantastic. But So this guy is clinging to Peter and John. So it says all the people came running toward them in the place called Solomon's portico. But when Peter saw, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Just imagine this guy's clinging to his leg. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us? Because the guy is clinging to you. It's interesting. I would be too. As if by your own power or godliness, we have made this man walk. This is important. This is critical for what God is saying. Now, maybe your translation in your Bible says, by, uh, by our own power or piety. Does anybody have that one? By your own power or piety. Uh, that's what it says. In, in my translation, it says godliness. And I want you to catch what Jesus is saying here. Why are you amazed at us like it's our own power or piety, our own power or godliness that has made this man well? That this is God who has done this. And then Peter begins to preach the gospel to them. This was done by the power of Jesus whom you crucified. 
That's how the rest of it goes. And he begins to reveal the scriptures to them. I want you to catch what Peter is really saying here. Um, it says that in verse 12 there, it says power and piety or power and godliness. Um, and he says, by neither of these things, my own power and my own piety has this been done, but by the power of Jesus Christ. What he's quoting there is, is um, Zechariah 4.6. Okay, and we'll get into that in a second. But the word power there um, is the word, the Greek word dunamis. It's the root word dynamite. So when you see power in the New Testament, many times that's the word dunamis, which means dynamite, okay? Not just a little power, but explosive power. Not by my own explosive power that has the ability to tear down mountains. I want you to understand, the way we carve through mountains for hundreds of years was we used dynamite. We would put dynamite into the rocks and blast the rocks apart. So dynamite has the ability and the power to remove mountains. So we're talking about a great power here. And he says, it's not by my power. This great explosive power belongs to Jesus. Be very weary of somebody who uses the gospel and the power of God to demonstrate their own power and authority. I walk very boldly and I will not, I will not repent. From walking boldly. I will not retreat or cave to some concept of false humility. I want you to understand, we are called to be humble. We are not called to be false humble. And what I mean by that is when, when I start to take the credit for myself that it is my power at work in the room that causes these things to happen, now I am walking in pride. That is a dangerous place to light the fuse on a stick of dynamite and keep it in my hand. As long as it remains with me, I'm going to explode when it goes off. I want you to understand that love for the other person from God is what drives me to release the power of God, but it is not my power lest it stay in my hand and blow me up. So many ministers are, are destroyed because they think the power belongs to them. And it ends up in the wrong hand. When I was 12 years old, my dad uh, decided that year we were going to go into the uh, fireworks business for a couple of weeks. He's like, ooh, I found a, a wholesale vendor. My dad was a, a wholesaler, electronics and housewares. And, and somehow he came across somebody that wholesaled fireworks. And so he decided that'd be a great thing. We should get into the fireworks business this season and sell some fireworks. And so he had all of these fireworks. And so for the 4th of July that year, he loaded up his trunk in his car and brought them from his, his business. And we had a trunk full of fireworks. Like it was epic. And we, we're, we were the neighborhood fireworks show. And so we're out there and we're just lighting fireworks. I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but I'm working with explosive power. And this is not today's fireworks. Okay. This is the good stuff. All right. These are the M80s that were a quarter stick of dynamite. You guys remember those? You tape four of those together, you got a stick of dynamite. Okay, well, we'll just cut them in force. So that'll be perfectly fine. No kids will do anything bad with that. I used to strap them to trees and see if I could cut the tree in half with enough of them. Okay, I dug a hole in... Kids, do not listen to me. Earmuffs. I used to dig a hole in my backyard and when my toys were bad. You guys seen that like toy story, that kid that blows stuff up? I'm like, oh, I was a rotten kid. I killed Woody. I killed Woody. But 
if my toy's broke, I'm like, oh, this toy is broke. It would immediately go to the backyard in that hole. Some M80s went on it down to the ground and watch it just blow up into bits and see if you could find the parts. That was how I disposed of my broken toys. My dad approved, okay? But, yeah, this is why there's warning labels right here. So, um, so I, I have a handful of black cats in my hand. And I like the black cats, and I get engaged in a conversation. I do not realize how far the fuse has gone, and I prepare. You know, like, like don't hand a kid that can't count a grenade. He's not going to get to three, right? And so I'm holding these black cats, and they go off in my hand. Yeah, sounds fun, huh? Great 4th of July, woo-hoo, right? And I'm like, Dad, what's wrong with you? You don't hand a 12-year-old a bunch of fireworks and a lighter. So my hand is like burned up. Uh, I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything, but it was really burned because my hand was closed. The fireworks went off in my hand. And, and so they were just the black cats. They weren't the M80s, right? Because you guys see a miracle. Oh, my gosh, look. He yeah, no, they had blown off my hand for sure. But uh, uh, I had to soak my hand in water like all night long, okay? I had my hand in water all night long just trying to deal with the pain until it finally subsided, but it was the worst. And I learned then that if you try to hold on to something explosive too long, it's likely to blow up in your face. And so when the power of God remains in your hand and not for others, when you take credit for it and keep it for yourself, it's likely to blow up on you. And I promise you will be injured. You do not, it needs to go out onto others. It needs to go for what it was intended to given for. It is not intended to remain solely in your hand. Amen? So Peter begins to preach. I want you to catch this. So in, in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes and he's like, well, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel wrote. And now here comes another moment where Peter looks down at this man, has compassion on him, and heals, sees him get healed by the power of God. And everyone begins to marvel at them. And he says, it's not by our power or our piety. So that word power is dunamis. Piety, the word there, pious, to be pious, is the adjective of piety, which is a verb. Earnestly compliant in the observance of religion. Reverent or devout. Or godliness. So let me say that again. Earnestly compliant in the observance of religion. Piety is to be reverent or devout. It means I am totally committed and devoted to this thing. And Peter makes a distinction. This man was not healed because I have power or because I'm godly. It's not my devotedness. It's not the fact that I have prayed all the prayers, that I woke up in the morning and I prayed all morning. I put in my 45 minutes, my 15 minutes or whatever. I, I, I read three chapters. I'm on a plan to read the Bible in a year. I'm on the year plan so I can read the Bible in a year. And that's why God showed up and healed this man because I have been committed to my devout plan of reading the Bible this year. Peter makes it very clear. You are not healed by such things. It was not my power nor my piety, my godliness that healed him. There are too many people that put it on themselves that I can't interact with someone. I can't pray with someone. I can't release the love of God on someone because I am not devoted enough. I didn't read my word this week, so I have nothing to pray for you. That is not the gospel. Power. This is what that word power means there. Other than dunamis, it says the ability or capacity to act or do something effectively. Physical strength or force exerted 
or capable of being exerted. So he's saying it's not by my own physical force or my physical strength that has allowed God to move in this situation. Now, why is this so significant? I want you to catch this. He's saying it's not my power. It's the power of Jesus whom you crucified. And he begins to testify of Jesus. Here's why it's so significant. It says that this man was begging at that gate year after year. He had been there a long time. He had been uh, disabled since birth. And this man was known. This is 50 days after Jesus. 51, maybe. We know it's right, right around there. So within two months or so of Jesus leaving. It's within a day of Pentecost. Or close. And this man is healed. And it says everyone knew him. If everyone that went through there knew him, he must have been there a long time. Amen? That means that Jesus would have had to pass this man many times as he went to the temple. He went into the temple to overturn tables. He went in there to worship. He went in there to sacrifice. Jesus went to the temple often. In fact, the story of the fig tree. Jesus went to the temple twice. Once that day, once the next day. And so we see moments where Jesus went to the temple and Jesus would have walked by this man frequently. And yet he never healed him. It would be really easy for this man if Peter would have come up to him and said, the power of Jesus can heal you right now. For that man to say, I saw Jesus. He walked by me. I asked him for money. He never healed me. It would be really easy for this man to be living in unbelief or walking in unbelief or doubt that Jesus would heal him considering Jesus crossed by him many times and did not heal him. It says that he was there every day. And so we see this happen. Why did Jesus not heal this man? See, sometimes our faith puts us in bad places. We begin to withdraw our faith because we say, well, Lord, you walk by him over and over. I have cried out to Jesus over and over. I don't know if this man ever said, Jesus, heal me. Or if he just asked him for alms. But we never see a moment like the man at the pool where he says, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? So Jesus never approaches him and asks for this. Why? Sometimes we lose faith and we lose heart. We lose hope by asking too many whys, just to be honest. Instead of just understanding that God is a loving God and this man was healed. Maybe not all the times Jesus walked by, but maybe, just maybe, this worked to the advantage to bring the kingdom of God into the right perspective. Now that Jesus is gone, now that Jesus had walked by this man, now here comes Peter and prays over him and he's healed and set free and the love of God and Peter is able to say to him, that Jesus that crossed by you, it's his power that lives in us and it's his power that heals you. The Jesus whom you crucified, the one who came through this temple and crossed by this man, is the same one who healed him. His love has always been for this man. His heart has always been to see this man restored. But see, God left a key here for us to walk in the authority of God. And it's called opportunity versus outcome. See, Jesus had the opportunity to heal him. He never acted on that opportunity for this man. He acted on it with many others. 
But Peter made a decision when he crossed by this man. He looked down on this man, this man who was begging for money, and he decided that that was an opportunity for him. And see, Peter understood the power did not come from him, but came from Jesus, that he was not responsible for the outcome. He was merely responsible for the opportunity. You are not responsible for the outcome. You are called to create opportunity, not outcome. And there is a difference. It's God who gives the outcome. It's God who heals. It's God who increases. We're called to water. But it's God who gives the increase. And if the outcome, the fruit of it belongs to the Lord, then that means all you have to do is create opportunity. Peter and John created an opportunity. Silver and gold, I have none, but what I do have, I freely give. Get up and walk. If that man had not got up and walked, Peter and John are not responsible, nor are they responsible for his healing. Because the power belongs in Jesus. The power is Jesus's. We're only responsible to create opportunity. How many of us, that lets us off the hook. God, I don't know what you're doing right now in this season. I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. I don't know when it's going to happen. But all I'm responsible for is creating the opportunity and believing in faith that you're able. You're, you're the God of outcome. It's you that heals. It's you that sets free. And so we create this opportunity. I want you to understand that Peter was referencing Zechariah 4.6. He preaches a lot of scriptures as he begins to preach. But this is what he said from Zechariah 4.6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. I, me and Emily didn't talk. She sang that song and it said, not by might nor by power, but by the spirit. This is what he's saying. It's not by my might nor by my power, but by the spirit of God that these things are happening. Don't look at me and wonder like we're gods, like we have any power at all. It's Jesus that heals. So he's, he's letting them know that today this scripture has been fulfilled, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Whose spirit? Jesus' spirit, because that's what Peter begins to explain. This is Jesus. This is the power of Jesus, the spirit of the living God in Jesus who is Jesus, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of Jesus, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what's so interesting about this is, is he literally gives these classifications, might. That word might there in the Hebrew means strength, efficiency, wealth, or army. This is important. It means strength, efficiency, wealth, or army. So you could say this, not by an army, nor by power, but by my spirit. Or you could say this, not by wealth, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You can't buy a miracle. It doesn't matter what kind of army you have, you can't win a miracle. You can't beat up heaven until it gives you a miracle. Not by an army and not by power, says the Lord, but by his spirit. And so they set a precedent that all Peter has to do is create an opportunity. Now, where does that opportunity come from? It comes from a place of compassion. It comes from a place of love. I want you to get it. Peter now has a very powerful ministry. He has moved into influence. He has just preached to thousands of people and seen thousands come in. Now, after this moment, thousands more come in. But Peter has recognized something. 
when I create an opportunity for one, I open up an opportunity for thousands. He gets the God math. When I love the one that's in front of me, God will put me in front of many. Too many people are looking for a platform. They're looking for success. They're looking for uh, the recipe for success in their life, business, ministry, whatever it is that you do, you know, advancement in your company, they're looking for success. And the key to success is loving who you're in front of the moment you're in front of them. If you're in customer service, love the customer you're in front of. If you're a boss over somebody, love your employees. If you're an employee, love your boss. Love your fellow employees. When you demonstrate that you love the one you're in front of, God will put you in front of more people. He'll allow you an opportunity to increase who you're in front of. So many ministers don't recognize that. They're looking for the opportunity for masses. And we teach that wrong. When, when a minister is just looking for the opportunity of many, then we end up teaching you the wrong way to lead your life over your opportunities. Ministry, business, whatever that is. When we step out of love, what we do is we dilute the potency of the power of the gospel. God, what's significant is that Peter looks down on this man. It says he actually, he's being carried, so he's looking down on him. God will not raise you up when you are unwilling to look down. There are so many people, they have their blinders on, they have their focus, they have their plan for the day. They're on their way to the church service. They're on their way to meet with people. And Peter stops for the one. And loves the one he's in front of and next to. And this man is saying, can I have some money? How many times have we just said no and moved on about our day? I don't have any money to give you, but I do have a prayer to offer you. I can bless you. I can speak over your life. What do you need prayer for? How many times do we walk by the one and then we say, God, why won't you give us what we're after? Why won't you give us our goals? Here's the truth is that Many of us, as we're trying to be successful in our life, we will learn lots of success models, whether it's for your business, whether it's for your, your company, whether it's for your, your, your enterprise, whether it's for ministry. It doesn't matter what you do in life. They will tell you the same things. You need to know what your goals are. You need to create a goal sheet. Have you ever heard of a goal board? A vision board, right? You got to cast that vision. If you can't see it, you'll never see it. Can't see it up there. It'll never manifest into reality. You need to begin to speak and decree the things over your life. All of that is absolutely true. There's definitely benefit to creating a vision board, having goal lists. If you write it down, put it out. But I'm telling you right now, especially as a, as a, as a pastor, right? I can create a whole goal sheet. We're going to have this many people. We're going to have this many salvations. We're going to see this many lives change. We're going to create a whole goal sheet. And then we're going to begin to try to figure out how to accomplish those goals I'm going to tell you this, Corinthians is very clear in chapter 13, where if we don't have love, it's all bankrupt anyways. That without love, it becomes bankrupt. Those goals will never be accomplished to fulfillment as long as I'm unwilling to love the people in front of me. Number one on the list of how do I accomplish the goals in my life, love whoever God places me in front of, and God will place me in front of more. That's how it works. Come on, somebody should say amen to that. You're like, oh, I got to love. Look, that's hard for people. I get it. We're in a season where God is beginning to unify. And I just say it this way. As a pastor, as someone who's laid down my life for the gospel, given up other opportunities, had people come and say, hey, you should start this business with me. 
And for me to say, I don't do business, I do ministry, that's all I do. Thank you for the opportunity, but I'm not after wealth. Wealth can come find me, but I'm not searching for it. That's not my agenda. And God has blessed me. But to lay down those things for the gospel, to lay down my life, to love the person I'm in front of, to try to love them the best I can. I'm still a work in progress. I'm still figuring out how to love. People ask me all the time for deeper things, and sometimes i got to look at them and say, man, I'm still trying to figure out love. I don't know. And then to have people that wound you. Remember what I said earlier, don't feel bad for me. There are always going to be people that wound you that you have the best intention to love and then they hurt you, and that's where a lot of our church hurt comes from. That's a lot where it comes from because these people are supposed to love us unconditionally. They're supposed to love us for our faults, right? This is supposed to be a hospital, right? We're supposed to love people who are hurting, and you come in and you're judged or you're hurt or you try to love someone. You're there for them. You take their phone calls at 2 in the morning. You help them move when they need to move, and then the moment you're in crisis, they bail, and they want another, or they hear a rumor about you, and even though they've been in your your relationship with you. They've seen everything about you. They've watched your character at two in the morning. They've watched you in the middle of hurt and how you handled it correctly. But somebody said that has no credibility or fruit in their life and they will take that word over yours. Come on, some of us have been through that, amen? I'm not throwing a pity party for me. I'm trying to help you, okay? As a pastor, that ha that's a regular occurrence. It's just a part of it. I went into pastoring eyes wide open. I knew that was gonna happen. I am grateful for a church that I have. I'll be honest with you. The, the stereotypes that happen in most churches to most pastors do not happen at the level to me here, this church. We have a healthy church who loves well. And I thank you for that. Come on, give yourselves an applaud for that. But needless to say, there are times where, where somebody who you've poured into and loved will wound you. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is something you walk out, but I found this to be true. For, for me, anyways. I have less problems forgiving a person when they're absent. When they're absent. I, I'm able to forgive them as they go. They go, they hurt me, they never say sorry, it's fine, I let it go, I'm not holding it as a wound. Where I find that I struggle with love is not when they've left, but when they realize they've done wrong and they want to repent. When they want to repent, that's when my flesh kind of rises up in me. And I'm like, oh, now you want to say sorry, huh? Right? Can I come and say sorry? <clears throat> I'm, has anybody ever experienced that before? You're like, I am not ready to forgive you yet. Don't you say sorry. I'm one of those that as soon as you say sorry, I forgive you no matter what. I can be pulled back in mid-swing, and you're like, sorry! And I'm like, oh, it's okay. I love you. I love you. I don't swing on anybody. But I love you. I, I can't help it. If you say sorry, I'm like, oh, it's okay. Shucks, I love you. Right? I, just, I do. I can't help it. So when I know someone's about to apologize and I'm still wounded, man, I don't want to talk to you. Because you're going to apologize, and I know what I'm going to have to do, forgive you and say it's okay and give you a hug, and everything's good, and we should go to lunch. I'll buy. Ugh. That's how it works. So sometimes when that initially happens, there's like this, the, 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 that's where I find, oh, 
That's where I'm still working through my process. That's where I'm still learning how to walk in love. I can love you as you're gone. You've hurt me. But the second you want to come back in relationship, that's when I realize there might be a few holes in my dam of love. Okay. And it might be leaking just a little bit. And that's where it exposes that. Uh, and I find that's my place. Okay. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not. But that's for me. That works. So what happens is in a season where God begins to pour out, the Lord spoke to me and said, this is a season where I'll begin to unify that which was divided. And, and this week alone, this week alone, I had three people I thought I would never hear from again. That I would never hear from again. Want to have a, a conversation with me. Can we talk? Can I, hi, can I give you a hug? Like, like people coming back into relationship, multiple, actually it might be like four or five you know, just that have come back into unity with us. Not all of them hurt me, but like there's been four or five in the last couple of weeks that just like left and came back or left relationship and came back into relationship. Three of them though, that were, they were wounds. And so God has all of a sudden begin to restore that. One of them, I was like, this is never going to happen, right? I had no faith. I had no hope. Okay. I was holding on to a little bit of love. Amen. You ever been there? I'm being real so that I can help you. Hold, and then I'm like, well, Lord, I don't even know what to do with this. And my first reaction was, I'm not responding. That, that, was, that was the first fleshly thought that came through my mind. And then the Lord was like, really? That's how you're going to handle it? No, no, I just needed 10 seconds, okay? I just needed to process for 10 seconds. Okay, I'll respond. And, and I had to deal with, with how, I uh, how to love well. What does that look like? Does that mean being a punching bag? Does that mean being a doormat? No, none of those things. And I'm processing, how do I love well without being a punching bag or being a doormat? It doesn't mean I allow abusive behavior. It doesn't allow, mean I allow dysfunction to pour out of my life. It doesn't mean I allow people to spew toxic on me. It just means that even if they spew, even if they, they hurt, even if they wound, that my job is to see how the kingdom of God can impact their life. And if I'm able to look down and say, I don't have anything for you. I don't have a relationship for you, but God loves you. And by his power and by his might, he wants to restore you to right standing. See, God loves everyone, including the beggar. And so I have to deal with the fact that I don't love in that moment, because I'm going to tell you this, there are so many pastors that want a platform that the reason why they fall from grace and you see great ministries rise up and suddenly they fall in error and they lose their theological correctness, they fall into error, they fall into sin, they fall into blasphemy and heretical teachings. They move from the place of power and authority they once walked in and you watch their ministry drift by the wayside. The reason is, is because they stopped remembering to love the one, to love the person they're in front of. They love the mass, they love the gathering, but they rarely will gather around the one. And I think that that's the biggest problem in our lives is when we lose focus of the one we're in front of. See, because the reason why ministers have gifts go off the rails is because they stop using love as a safeguard to power. Let me explain that. They stopped using love to safeguard his power. Love was placed there as a safeguard, as a safety measure to prevent us from perverting power. The, the, we, the classic saying goes like this, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts 
Absolutely. What is more absolute? What is more absolute than the authority of heaven? The creative power of a living God who spoke everything to existence, lives and breathes inside of us, and is released by us in obedience. What is more powerful than that? It is the absolute power. And God gave us a safety measure of love in relationship that allows us to flow with power. When we love the person we're in front of, when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbors ourselves, that safety measure allows us to love God and love others. It allows us to pour out in a protective state. Nobody wants to grab live wires that are flowing with electricity, do you? Right, there's a protective coating over those wires to protect you. That is the love of God that protects the flow of power. So it gets from its source to its source without anything in between coming undone. That love is the coating on our wires of heaven to protect and release the power of God without it being distorted, disturbed, or corrupted. So we're not responsible for the outcome because it's not our power at work. We're only responsible for the opportunity. And when we realize that, we realize God can use us despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, despite our lack, despite our emotional situations, despite our, our processes. God uses people who fail because there's just, there just aren't any other type of people. Why would God make people with the ability to be so imperfect? Sometimes that's the hardest thing to process. God, if you're so loving and kind, big, just, and powerful, why would you make people with the ability to be so imperfect? Because by loving imperfect people, he can demonstrate how perfect his love really is. 1 John 4.18 says this, and I'll close right here. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Perfect love casts out fear. What kind of love? Perfect love. Not imperfect love, not most the way love, not earthly love, not fleshly love, not good love. Perfect love casts out fear. It is the perfect love of God that casts out. Perfect love is a weapon that pushes the enemy out of your life. So when you've done all you can do to stand and you are continuing to stand, when faith has gone by the wayside, when hope has turned into hopelessness and there's an inkling of love left in your heart, if you allow that love to be perfected in you through Christ, recognizing that the outcome that you are seeing that has stolen your hope, that has stolen your faith, That's robbed you of the ability to see God's plan for your life. That as long as you hold on to love, that fear cannot remain. Hopelessness cannot remain. Faithlessness cannot remain. But that the plans of the enemy are pushed back by love being perfected in you. You can lose your faith a little. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You can lose your hope. I, I'm just feeling hopeless. I don't know if you'll do it, but I still love you. Just that little bit of love has the power 
in it to release God into your situation and to bring back the hope that's been taken, the love that's been taken. And if you allow, excuse me, the faith that's been taken. If you allow love to remain, because it's the greatest weapon that you have. And when you're unsure about where your love is at, when that person has hurt you and you say, I'm hurt by church, I'm hurt by situation. God, I don't know if you're going to show up in this situation, but I'm going to choose love. And I'm going to love the one I'm in front of. Lord, I'm not responsible for the outcome because right now when I'm looking at my outcome, it doesn't look that good. The outcome I'm seeing in my life does not look pleasant. Lord, I'm not responsible for the outcome. It's not because I didn't read my Bible enough. It's not because I didn't pray enough, but those things will help you gain more authority. It's not because of that. Because the outcome belongs to you. But Lord, has I created an opportunity for you to show up. The reason why we read, the reason why we pray, the reason why we stop and pray over others and minister to others is because we are called to be opportunity creators. Boy, do I have an opportunity for you. The outcome belongs to God. And so if all I have to do is create space, all I have to do is create opportunity for God to show up in that situation, and I'm not responsible for how he shows up, that lets me off the hook. Well, God, you haven't showed up in my situation because I don't pray hard enough. No, you just need to pray. You just need to create opportunity. You just need to, well, if I just would have praised a little harder. No, just, just praise. Just step in and give him an opportunity to create an outcome. Give him an opportunity. Give him something on the altar of sacrifice of your life to say, here it is. Lord, would you accept it? If you don't lay down anything, there's nothing for him to pick up. So we create the opportunity. Lord, I'm going to choose to love, even though today I'm struggling with that a little bit. Lord, I'm going to create an opportunity. I can't ask for you to bring revival that brings unity if I'm unwilling to create an opportunity of reconciliation with my brother. An opportunity is there, available, and I'm going to step into that opportunity. The outcome may be no reconciliation, or the outcome may be reconciliation. The outcome belongs to him. I belong to the opportunity. So I'm going to create the space and say, God, if you want reconciliation, let's do that. The outcome belongs to you. Many of us have not created the opportunities in our life. Many of us have not allowed the opportunity of love to be planted in our life and move forward. While you might still be in doubt or moments of pain or moments of hurt in your life, if we will just use those moments to say, God, I still love you and I'm still looking for an opportunity to serve you. And I'll put this situation aside while I create an opportunity to love the one I'm in front of. And Lord, as I love others, I trust you with the outcome until I can fully trust you with the outcome. Amen? We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom. Shalom.